Peter then moves on to address the threats raised by corrupt leaders in the church, and he focuses on more objections that they raise. So first, these teachers deny the idea of a final reckoning, when God's going to hold all people accountable for their choices. And this denial is what conveniently allows the teachers to ignore Jesus' teaching about money and sex, because they're making tons of profit by teaching in the churches, not to mention the fact that they're sleeping around. But Peter reminds the readers that God can and will meet rebellion with his justice. He recalls three ancient examples when God did this. He first mentions the story about the sons of God in Genesis 6 as it was interpreted in a popular Jewish work of the time called First Enoch. First Enoch says the sons of God are rebellious angels who crossed the line and slept with women, earning God's judgment. Peter then brings up the story of the ancient flood and then the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In each case, there was a rebellion that led to divine judgment. But, Peter says, God was always faithful to deliver his people, and he uses the story of Lot to provide an example. Peter then connects these ancient stories to the teacher's corrupt way of life. They too are after money and sex, they despise God's authority, and they lead other people to think that God doesn't care about moral decisions. He says they teach a message of Christian freedom and use it as a license to do whatever they want. And this is why Peter's going to bring up Paul's letters later on in chapter 3. It appears that these teachers have distorted Paul's message of liberation in Christ. But that's not the kind of freedom Paul meant. And Peter makes clear that these teachers are not really free. In reality, they're slaves to their bodily impulses. And the fact that they're Christians makes it even more tragic because knowing Jesus' teaching makes them doubly accountable. They have become pitiful examples of the ancient proverb about a dog returning to its vomit and a washed pig going back to the mud. Great picture, huh? Get a chance to, I heard somebody I thought said, ew, yuck, right? Great picture. This chapter 2 really key to the book, and it's a great contrast to chapter 1. In chapter 1, we have true teaching. In chapter 2, false teaching. And the question that we need to ask ourselves today is, who are the false teachers in our day that we're listening to? And you may say, well, I don't listen to false teachers. How do you know that? You see, that's a question that we've got to ask ourselves. How do we identify false teachers? Now, it doesn't sound very PC to call somebody a false teacher, right? And yet that's what Paul, or Peter, I'm going to do this throughout this book, I'm sure. Keep saying Paul, and it's really Peter. So uh, it's not Paul or Mary, it's Peter that we're referring to. Um, sorry, just a little music reference there. Um, but false prophets, it says in chapter 2, verse 1, also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought, bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. I want to stop there. This is in direct contrast to what he talks about in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we've, we've been talking about that thread that runs through the, the promises of God. And we see in chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, By which he is granted to us, and he's, by which looks back at the divine power that's given us everything that we need. Everything. Wow. Uh, it's going to be one of those days. Uh, his, it's, it's, uh, it's everything that his power has granted to us that pertain to life and godliness by which 
He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that. What are the purpose of the promises? So that we are partakers of the divine nature. We become like Christ. We don't become gods, but we do become like Christ. A lifelong endeavor that we become more and more like Jesus Christ. As Paul said in Galatians, my little children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Ultimately, will be when we see God face to face, we'll be like him, Paul says in Philippians. But until then, a day-by-day process, baby steps that we get a little bit more like Jesus every day if we take the right steps. And he talks about what some of those steps are in verse 5 of chapter 1. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then he gives the list. Knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Now, why do I read those? Because the contrast is in chapter 2. Every one of those, faith, we just read, denying the master who bought them. Whoa, denying Jesus. Why would someone willingly and willfully deny Jesus? Well, Peter did it. So he's an expert. He's the one that should be talking about this, right? Because he was afraid. We can let fear cause us to not stand up for Christ. Fear can cause us in a classroom to, to not raise our hand very high. At, or we want to say something and we, when we back off, Right? Being fearful means that we don't speak up when we should speak up or maybe we should be silent and we're not silent. Even denying the master who bought them. And so you you look at that and you realize, wow, this is a a huge thing, this this idea of of, uh, these things here, faith, denial of faith, even denying the master who, who bought them. I have a list of these that I, uh, I, I started putting them together. In fact, I just put them together this week. Um, now I can't find them. There they are. Uh, the first one, faith, denying Jesus in verse 1. And in verse 10, blaspheme the glorious ones. Now who are the glorious ones? Well, we know who they're not because of the context. Always look at the context. The glorious ones, whereas angels, though great in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment. So it's not the angels. This blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, so it's not the Lord. Who are these glorious ones? Most likely the cherubim, seraphim, and others that are around the throne of God. What does that mean? They despise the unseen realm. They look down on the unseen realm. They will deny that there are any kind of spiritual realm around us. That this world is all physical. That's all there is. There is nothing more. Uh, Science demonstrates that. That's what they would say. And my question is, how do you know? The question that I've asked some people that have said that before is, so let me ask you a question. Do you know everything? And they say, no, they don't. Well, you'd have to know everything to know that there is no unseen realm. You don't know that, and so at best you can be as an agnostic, and, and, you, and you realize there's some very logical reasons why I believe there is a God. 
that he exists, that he is here. And those who would say categorically there is not, there is not an unseen realm, they don't know that. And they can't say. And what we have is someone risen from the grave that has come back and said, see, I am who I said I am. Jesus Christ, risen from the grave. And so we, when we come to this even denying the master who bought them versus faith, where are you? Where are we? Are we going to be those of faith? Or are we going to be those who shy away from who Jesus is because it's not now as popular to be someone who follows Jesus? I have found that every cult, every false teaching somehow modifies who Jesus is. Either he doesn't exist or he was just a, a good teacher upon this planet or he was the first created being or he is the first one to achieve godhood. They've changed who Jesus is. They still include Jesus because they, they, they know that people think he's important. But they've changed him to fit their philosophy and their teaching. And so if somebody modifies who Jesus is, they would fit under the class of false prophet, false teacher. Because see, if we're answering the question, how do you know? Then we've got to have the details of how to identify. And so instead of faith, they're denying the master who bought them. That idea of the master who bought them. Jesus bought us. He died for us. He died for our sins. He died in our place. It means that they're also denying the atonement that Jesus Christ died for anybody other than himself. I found that uh, a lot of people, uh, when you're looking at whether they're a false teacher or not, not only how did they change Jesus, but how have they changed the gospel? Or do they even preach a gospel? It's not popular, after all, to preach the gospel. I, I, uh, when I go to a funeral and I'm asked to, to speak at a funeral, I want to preach the gospel. I have people that are mad at me for preaching the gospel at a funeral. They say, oh, you're taking advantage of people or you're whatever. And it's like, no, this is important stuff. This is something that we all need to think about. And so now I, I instead of you know, feeling like I kind of want to sneak the gospel into a funeral, I don't do that anymore. I just say, I'm getting ready to preach the gospel. I'm getting ready to communicate the gospel. I'm not trying to twist anybody's arm. I'm not trying to take advantage of anyone's grief. But this is important for us to talk about at times like these. Or this is part of the story of this person that just died, and he wants you to know about it and has asked me to share it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not shared by so many that are considered false teachers. We have them in our day. And you can identify them by the fact that they have modified Jesus. You can identify them by the fact that they've modified the gospel. In fact, there's a movie out called The American Gospel. And the American Gospel focuses on how because of American we have so much that prosperity is the way to go and the prosperity gospel it's been modified that we need to you need to trust God for giving you wealth and that's what it's all about that God wants to make you happy now and so he wants to provide for you now and, and you realize wait a minute where's the gospel have you been preaching and, the, and you don't hear the gospel in their messages 
And it doesn't mean that they, you'll hear it in every message, but you should hear it at least some, and you don't hear it. And so these become destructive heresies. Why? Because if you're changing Jesus and you're changing the gospel, that means people aren't getting saved. That's a big deal. That's destructive. So we have this idea of faith. The second thing is virtue. In this list, faith, add to your, supplement to your faith, virtue. And virtue, you see, if I, if I uh, and, and I put this list together this week, and I might move some things around later, but uh, I was looking at the idea of greed. And greed is mentioned three times in, this, in the ch- second chapter. In verses 3, it says, and in their greed, they will exploit you. So what do you do? You follow the money, right? If you want to know if somebody's a false teacher, is money the biggest thing about them? Do they live in a mansion? Do they have multiple jets that their ministry has purchased for them? There might be a reason for a jet. I'm not saying that, but, but you can tell when, when money's the biggest thing about, uh, I'm not asking for one, by the way, uh, although it would be nice. Uh, if anyone wants to give me one, I'm, I'm open, but, uh, but I'm not asking. I don't want to stand before Jesus someday and explaining that one, right? In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They'll tell you and give you promises, but they're really on the take. I remember in that uh, movie, American Gospel, this one son of 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 a preacher was visiting this house that his family owned on the Greek Isles, it was a million-dollar home. And he hadn't come to Christ yet. He was an adult, but he hadn't accepted Christ as his Savior because he hadn't really been impacted by what the gospel is, and his dad wasn't really preaching the gospel. And so he, he began to, uh, and, and even if he was, he wasn't responding to it. And, 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 and he told this story about him standing on the Greek Isles, and he thought about it later after he came to Christ, that here he was in this million-dollar home looking over the Mediterranean where, his, uh, where the apostle Paul sacrificed and, 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 and spent time in the deep uh, because his shipwreck and, and was, uh, uh, moved the gospel from, from Israel to the whole known world in his day and made those incredible sacrifices, and here he is living high on the hog in a million-dollar place. It's about greed. And that's what he said. This idea of greed, you see it in verses 14 and 15 as well. It says, they have hearts trained in greed. I mean, it's not something that they just kind of do casually. They're trained in this stuff. They're good at it. They can get people's money. They know how to do it. They know how to entice you. In fact, it says they entice unsteady souls. It says right before that verse, uh, that sentence, I mean. They have hearts trained in greed. We see in verse 15, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They've followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor who loved gain from wrongdoing. Balaam was the guy that was hired by Balak when Israel was looking for a land and, and was wandering in the wilderness in Numbers. Um, Balak said, uh, I need to hire you, Balaam. I know you're a prophet of God, and I want you to curse the children of Israel. And so what does Balaam do? He was a prophet of God. He goes, sure, no problem. How much? 
And so he pays him the money. He gets on this mountain and says, now curse him. And instead of cursing, he blesses. He goes, no, 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 no. That's not what I ask you to do. And so he moves him to another mountain. Maybe from this vantage point, you can curse them. And he blesses them again. And God rebuked Balaam through his donkey. And we see that Peter refers to that. But was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with the human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Stop it. Stop going after money and finances. Greed. Third thing we see to add to your faith, knowledge. And that idea of knowledge is, is uh, we looked at before last week, epigonosco, which is experiential knowledge to a great degree with great clarity. That you experience God, that you not just intellectually know about him and study about him and know all these facts about him, but that you know him, you spend time with him. That was a thing that led me to Jesus was a guy asked me a simple question, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? I had no clue what that meant. I didn't know what it meant to have a personal relationship with him. And I would bet that there are a lot of believers to this day, a lot of people who have, who have prayed the prayer, who have, and they don't understand. No, it's about a personal relationship. It's not about ritual. I was raised in a tradition where I knew all the ritual. I could, I could do the Apostles' Creed. I had it by memory. I knew the Lord's Prayer. We said it every week. I could stand up. I could sit down. I was an acolyte. I carried a cross. I uh, distributed the elements. I knew all this stuff. But I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know what that meant. This knowledge personal knowledge, spending time with him. I remember the first time that somebody said, hey, do you want to go to Israel because you get a chance to walk where Jesus walked? And I go, I do that every day. Why do I need to pay a lot of money to go somewhere else to do it? But then I'm thankful that I went because I understand my Bible better and that means a lot to me. And I did get a chance to walk with Jesus there, just like I walk with him every day, because it's about a relationship. It's not about all these different rituals. What do you see in chapter 2? Chapter 2 and verse 1, destructive heresies. Verse 3, false words. And 10, or, or in uh, uh, th uh, 13, deceptions. And the fourth thing he talks about here is he says, or he says steadfast, or he says self-control. And this idea of self-control. In verse 13, he says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. I think, you know, usually people revel at night. In the daytime means you're very blatant about it, and I guess you're doing it all day long, so they just feel like that's where freedom is. They promise that kind of freedom, and in fact, you see that later in verse 19. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Jesus promises freedom also. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But freedom is not antinomianism, which means without law. Freedom is not just doing whatever you please. Romans 6, Paul talks about that. 
says, shall we sin so that grace may abound? Because if we sin more, we get more grace. So we should sin a lot so we get a lot of grace, right? And he goes, no, may it never be. Make a noise to the strongest way he could say it. No, 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 no. It's not about just doing whatever you want. Not reveling in the daytime. And you see this idea of sensuality that's strong in their teaching. In verse 2, it says of chapter 2, and many will follow their sensuality. You see that idea also found in verse 10, in the lust of defiling passion. You see it in verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery. You see it in verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, the enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. This idea of sensuality becomes important to them. And in fact, they were apparently doing this and promoting this even during the Lord's Supper times. Because you see that it, it says in uh, verse 13, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blot, blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. That idea of feasting was an idea that they would eat a meal together and then have the Lord's Supper, the love feast that they did, the agape feast that they would have where they love the Lord and where they serve one another. And so they were even involved even in those events. So they were in among them. These false teachers were among them promoting these kinds of things, promoting these kinds of ideas. And so you think about it, Peter's calling them out. He's saying, no, this is not it. And I think, how do we get involved in those things? Do we believe those things? We can do whatever we want. Our generation, our culture says yes. We can do whatever we want. I can be a Christian and then I can do whatever I want. And In verse 17, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but I, I want you to see the connection between what he talks about in, in verse 5 and, and how chapter 2 is really picking that apart. In verse 17, he says, These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. I think, oh wow, you're waxing eloquent now, Peter. You're getting real poetic on us. He's using in that first one a phrase that they would have known well, waterless springs. When you were a traveler in that day and you were traveling looking for a place to water your animals and to fill your canteens, you would look for these little green spots somewhere, these little oases somewhere. Jericho was actually one of those kinds of places because there was a spring there at Jericho. There was a spring in Jerusalem. There was a spring at Masada uh, or at, uh, at, at uh, Megiddo. And so they would build their cities next to these spring so you would want uh, these these the water from this spring so imagine that you're going and you go wow here's the green place and you get there and it's bone dry no water to be found yeah there was enough water to keep everything green but it's all in the ground and there's no water for you it promises a lot gives you nothing and I think that many in our day Get involved in pornography because it seems to promise everything, but it gives you nothing. It doesn't satisfy you in the way that you were hoping. 
It may give you a momentary sense of excitement, but doesn't fulfill ultimately. And the amazing thing is, is it used to be a guy thing, and now many women are getting involved in it. In terms of, of looking at stuff online, the, the statistics just keep going up. It's something that we all have to deal with, with the internet and with all of that. That's a waterless spring. And it's not only a waterless spring, it's misdriven by the storm. We've seen those uh, this year uh, with all the hurricanes coming up into the Gulf Coast. And doing the destruction that they have misdriven by the storm. They destroy, they create chaos. And that's exactly what any kind of waterless mist does. Or these waterless springs do. Is they, they destroy you. They destroy your family. They destroy you from the inside. And you think, well it's just me. I'm just viewing. No, it destroys you. It destroys your heart. And what it does is, it, does, it plays into the hand of false teaching. Because false teaching makes your life about you. And not about the Lord. Worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And he says, no. When we have made life all about us, and you think, well, I don't do that. But if you made life all about you. See, that's the question we got to ask. If I were to look at your Facebook page or your Instagram page, or, your, or whatever social media you might be using at present, Twitter or whatever, would I come away and I see Jesus Christ or you? I was reading a, an article uh, this week, and it was called The Spiritual Pandemic of Narcissism, where we've made Christianity all about us. Well, how do I know I've done that? Well, when I walk out today, out of the service, do I say, oh, it's a little warm in there? Or, I didn't really like the songs they picked. Or, oh, that Buckles guy, you know, I, I've heard better. You know, or whatever. Or do you come away saying, wow, look what God said in his word. And here's how it impacted me. When we go through difficulties and we post them and we think about them, do people see a whiner and complainer? Or are they moved to say, I've got to follow that Jesus? Is that what's promoted on your Facebook page? Because see, I was in this article, they were, they were talking about this idea of narcissism and how we buy into it as believers in Jesus Christ and how Paul didn't. Paul was, went through all of these things, these sufferings, and, and he lists them. He says some of the things that he fought through, that he was uh, a day and a night in the deep in the Mediterranean because of shipwreck. He was, he was, it told how many times he was whipped and left for dead, given 39 lashes, how many times he went through difficulties of being stoned and others and daily concern for the churches and all these things. But instead of saying, man, I really had it bad. You should see how bad I had it and whining and complaining. What does he say for me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you go, wow, I want that. I want that kind of faith that goes through the difficulties that he says. And then he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the kind of lifestyle I want. That, that someone that at the end of his life, after having gone through all that, is saying to know Christ 
That that's his goal. At the end of life in Philippians, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings and becoming conformed to his death. And you go, wow, I'm inspired by this man. I'm inspired by his faith. And my question is, which one are we? Which do people see from us? Do they see and come away inspired and want to grow? Or are they kind of going, "Ah, whining again? Showing the same stuff he ate last week? You know, whatever. I mean, those are not bad things, but it's like, is mixed in 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 the midst of our lives, Jesus Christ, and do people see a clear picture of him? I want my life to be characterized by godliness. That's what he says here in chapter 1 and verse 5. To add godliness to our faith. That God is important to our life. That when people see us, they see a little bit of Jesus. And that's what's part and parcel with what they see in us. Instead of despising authority, we see in verse 10. In the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, whose authority? Governmental authority? No, I think it's Jesus' authority in our life. Is he Lord of my life? Will I say yes to him every time or am I saying no to him because I got, I, I'm kind of afraid to do what he's asking me to do and this seems better? Godliness. Brotherly love and love and the opposite of that, we talked about sensuality. Eyes full of adultery. And I was thinking, he wants us to live like this. Don't fall into this. And anybody who teaches you this is the way to live the Christian life, this is how to live life, this is how to have meaning in life, this is how to have freedom in life, they're missing it. They're missing the most important thing. Bold and willful, verse 10. They do not tremble as the, they blaspheme the holy ones. They, they have no regard for, for uh, the unseen realm. Though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as a wage for their wrongdoing. And you think, wait a minute, he's talking about destroying and destruction. And, and, and remember what the argument is that they have here at the very beginning of the chapter. They're saying there's not going to be any destruction, that there's not going to be any judgment. And Peter says, wait a minute. Let me show you the judgment of God. Verse 4. And in fact, there's a list of four things that he says from verse 4 on. If, which gives God judged in this way. And then in verse 9, he says, then the Lord knows how. So here's his conclusion. If God did not spare angels. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world. 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes. You kind of get the idea, right? And if if the past is a great predictor of what's going to happen in the future, Peter's laying it out. God judged in this situation. He judged in this situation. He judged in this situation. Judgment's coming. Now, there are books out where, where, where they say, no, there's not going to be a judgment coming. 
You see that among false teachers. Oh, we don't like the idea of hell. So it doesn't, it doesn't exist. Or, or there's going to be a hell, but it's only for a short term, and most people are going to leave, and they'll have a second chance after they die. And, and, and Rob Bell talked about that in his book about hell. And we began to realize, wait a minute, there, Scripture's pretty clear. Peter's pretty clear. There is judgment coming. But Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment of the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in lust of defiling passion and despising authority. And so he's, he's, his main idea is the Lord knows how to rescue. And that idea of rescue, that word that's used there is not only just to save somebody from something, but it's to draw them to oneself. Back to that personal relationship. God not only rescues us from ourselves and rescues us from sin and rescues us from that which will ultimately bind us, but he also draws us to him in personal relationship. So what are we going to do? Are we going to respond to him? Where are you today? Have you responded to him? Have you, I'm, I'm talking about the gospel now, not trying to twist your arm, take advantage of anybody. But we need to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He purchased us with a price. He died in our place so that we would be spared of judgment. So that those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, their sin is covered. If you think the Christian life is about doing, you've missed it. The Christian life is about done. It's done. It is finished. He finished the work on the cross. He finished dying in our place. He finished taking care of our sin. And all we need to do is respond in faith. To put our faith in Jesus Christ. As John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That is to those who believe on his name. That's why here at the beginning he talks about in, in chapter 1, to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. By his righteousness we believe and because we believe we obtain a salvation that he has promised us. We become children of his. We are heirs of eternal life. If you haven't taken that step, that's the place to start. I did that in 1972. Put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And thus began a personal relationship with him. At that day, my sins were covered. In that day, I became a, an heir of eternal life. In that day, about 200 things happened. I received the Holy Spirit, which every believer receives. I was given everything I need for life and godliness. So many things happened in that moment. If you haven't taken that step, that's the place to start. To simply talk to, to God and to tell him that you want the free salvation that he has offered to you in Jesus Christ. That you believe in him. 
When you take that step, you have essentially got the freedom that these false teachers promise but can't come clean on. Because you see in verse 20 it says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. And you first you think, oh, no, can I lose my salvation? No, that's not what Peter's saying here. He uses what in the Greek is a second class conditional sentence, which means that he believes that it's contrary in the mind of the author that what he's saying is contrary to fact. For if, and it won't happen, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, you can't know Jesus Christ and then you, you fall into these things is what he is saying. Does that mean that we can't fall into sin as a believer in Christ? Yeah, we can, but we're not going to lose our salvation. He doesn't believe that these people, these false teachers are believers in Christ. He doesn't believe that they're children of God. He said the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered them. You can know what the truth is. You can know what the gospel is and walk away from it. It's the parable of the sower, the parable of the seed. That the seed is thrown upon the ground and, and four different responses. And, and, and I believe the last response is that of a believer. And the other three may not be. It comes up quickly but then dies. And maybe they're in that category. It says, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, who after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. We get involved in stuff. That's not faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. So we got a question to ask those of us who have put our faith in Christ, have we bought in or where have we bought in to false teaching? You see, if we're growing in Christ, we're going to buy into some false teaching, but, but growing in Christ means I move from false teaching to that which is true and right and good, the way of righteousness. Am I choosing Christ? Am I choosing not to despise his authority in my life, but to respond to his authority? I'd like to close with a, an illustration of someone who had to make that choice. The guy's name was Sujihara. He was a Japanese ambassador to Russia, more specifically Lithuania, when it was still part of Russia. And he had great ambition with his life, things that he wanted to accomplish. And during World War II and leading up to it, all these Jews started coming to Lithuania and, and from Poland especially and they were, they were wanting to get out of what was going on with Nazi Germany. They were wanting visas to escape. Japanese visas. Amazingly. Knowing what you know about where Japan was involved in this process as well. And Sujihara was a believer in Jesus Christ. He knew that if he started giving these visas, which his government said don't do, 
He was not only going to lose his job, he was going to lose his future position. And instead, he decided as a believer in Christ, he had to save as many lives as he could. And he just began writing visas as fast as he could before he got caught. He got shipped back to Japan and the rest of his life, he worked in a light bulb factory making a wage that wasn't a livable wage. And when asked about that chapter in his life, he said it was the most important chapter in his life because he saved 6,000 lives because he wrote these visas as fast as he could. Here was a guy that, when faced with a choice, knew I was born for such a time as this. We're in a great global pandemic And we bemoan living in 2020, right? We think we want things to get back to normal. And the question is, maybe you were born, and I think that specifically, yes, you were born, and so was I for such a time as this. This is a time to stand up. This is a time to say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a time for us to live, not according to false teaching, where we we just want freedom and we just want to get release from this stuff, but for us to live for him in the midst of struggle which is really what he talks about in, in, in 1 Peter, about external suffering, and here in 2 Peter, internal suffering, internal struggles. And we're going through both. And our question is, well, who are we going to follow? Are we going to add to our faith virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love, or these other things? to manage and get through. God wants us to make the better choice. We have everything we need for life and godliness. We don't have an excuse to say, well, I would have, but no. We have all we need. Let's choose following him. Let's choose honoring him and living for him and not for self. Father, we come to you this morning. And I know I've been very convicted by this passage this week. How easy it is to just complain about life. Instead of to rejoice in this great salvation that you've provided. And Lord, I don't want people around me to think that the Christian life is just about griping and complaining and whining. I want people to see that the Christian life is about you. It's about Jesus. And we don't need other things to free us from emotional distress. We don't need more stuff to make us happy. We don't need more sensuality to relieve us of internal pain. We don't need drugs. We don't need alcohol. We don't need any of that stuff. We just need Jesus. He is the one who brings joy to our lives and promises with that joy to set us free. We can be, in the, be free in the midst of a bondage. 
of a world that doesn't make sense. Lord, right now, I just take a moment and, and I want everyone to just talk to Jesus about what it is that you need to do to change your focus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can come to you. Lord, we know that our focus gets off. I pray that today would be one of those days, like Peter said, that I'm reminding you of these things so that our lives won't be ineffective or unfruitful, that we won't be blind. So that we won't fall Lord Jesus, I pray, help us to live by faith. Help us to live virtuous lives. Help us to live according to knowledge and personal relationship with you. Transform this world and use us. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.